If you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, while you're turning there, we want to let our children know, uh, some of the children have already been dismissed to Children's Church, but if you would like to go, children, up through third grade, this would be your time where you can be dismissed. You can go to the back and our Children's Church staff will take you downstairs for your time. Um, And so this is your opportunity. Uh, So our children up through third grade, you can be dismissed to Children's Church now. And um, we'll uh, we'll look forward to hearing what you've learned down there uh, shortly uh, after we're done this morning. So again, Matthew chapter 22 is where we are. As the name suggests, the book of Hebrews is a book Uh, or the book of Matthew, excuse me, is a book written by the Apostle Matthew to prove Jesus as the divine king of the Jews. It is a uh, especially Hebrew audience, and I trust we will be blessed as we are once again in Matthew chapter 22 this morning. It's a well-known saying. The saying goes, find a job you love, and you will never have to work a day in your life. This famous phrase has been attributed to the intellectual giants such as Mark Twain and Confucius. And if I were to ask you what your perfect job would be, what would you say? Whatever it is for you, whether it's a job working directly with people or if your ideal job would be one where you are alone with your tasks, one thing I can say is true. Your ideal job would probably be something that you are passionate about. Something that gets you out of bed, something that would make you make the hours seem like they just fly by. It would be something that you would gladly sacrifice your time, your talent, and your treasure for. You would be happy to make those sacrifices for simply because it brings the joy uh, that you get from that job. Oh, there may still be parts of that, that job that uh, are toil, but overall it would be something you would be happy to labor for. Something that you would give a measure of satisfaction, that would give you a measure of satisfaction and fulfillment. What do I mean by all that? Well, work wouldn't be work when we love what we are doing. You may even be able to say that you would, in one sense, quote unquote, live for the job. We've heard all of these things describing some, some people as they are talking about the job that they love. So, have you thought of it? We probably all have something in mind that we would love to pursue as our ideal career. And it would bring us so much satisfaction, we think, that we would call ourselves even successful if we attained unto it. And while I was thinking about jobs and pursuits that we are passionate about, I got to thinking about the whole duty or job of humanity, of mankind. Why are we here? What is our whole duty? Is there a pursuit or a job that we are all supposed to pursue and be passionate about? What are we supposed to live for? Again, some are alive for finance, some are alive for art or engineering, or teaching, but is there something that overshadows all those other pursuits and gets to the heart of what we are supposed to be about as humans? In other words, what must we all pursue to be considered a successful human being? Mankind pursues all kinds of passions, 
But is there a pursuit that supersedes all others? What is then the greatest expectation and responsibility placed upon man? These questions are not new. They've been asked by millions over the millennia. And thankfully, the Word of God takes this question and addresses it clearly and very directly. Our answer comes to us from Jesus himself, and he declares that every human has the same ultimate responsibility. There are no exceptions. We all have the same expectation placed upon us. It's been placed upon us by the one who created us. And let's see this expectation together as we are again in Matthew chapter 22. Our text for the morning is verses 34 through 40. Again, Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. God's word says, But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him or testing him and saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Verse 37 is Jesus' response. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What is going on? Well, the Sadducees... Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were trying to trip Jesus up. And so they come to him and they seek to mess him up and to trip him up. But he responds, and specifically with this group of individuals, the Pharisees, um, they come together and they come and they ask, what is the great commandment in the law? In other words, what is the greatest expectation placed on man? What is the thing that we are all supposed to be about? And what they were doing was trying to test him to see what his reaction was. Jesus' reaction is clear. God commands very clearly that humans, first off, verse 37, must love God. This is the greatest command in potency and import. We are to love our God. He says very clearly, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is man's chief responsibility. Jesus states later that everything else hangs on this one command. All others pale in comparison to it. But this morning, what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love God with your whole heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? Well, the Hebrew word for love is ahav, and that means to desire, to breathe after, to pursue, or to delight in. It's literally a panting after something. In this case, it is a panting after God. Have you ever been thirsty? Have you ever thought about that refreshment? that will be coming. Perhaps it has ice in it. Perhaps I'm not, I'm going to stop because I'm going to get thirsty. But you start thinking about nothing. I mean, everything else in life is about that one thing. It is pursuing with all the gusto and desire that we have to breathe after or to pursue. That is the expectation. The Greek translation 
is agapao, and that is the choice-like kind of love. It's not dependent on your feelings. So we are called to love like this. We are called to love our God. This word God is actually Yahweh. It is the covenant name of God Almighty. So when asked by the religious leaders of the day what the most important command in the Bible was, Jesus responded, love God. And then later, love others. To better understand what Jesus was commanding, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the reason we're going to Deuteronomy chapter 6 is because Jesus in this passage, Matthew chapter 22, quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is considered to be within the Jewish culture, the Shema. It is the prayer of every, uh, uh, every Jewish person every day. For millennia, they have prayed this prayer. We're going to start Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. That is the quotation. When God or when when the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, what is the greatest command? Then Jesus quotes this command given by God. You shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. So God's command is clear. Humans are to love God. To better understand what that is, let's look a little bit more about some of these phrases. You have, very clearly, it lays it out in verse 5, with thy heart, soul, and might. And what are those, what are those words? What do those words mean? Well, you first off are to love God with your whole heart. Loving someone with our whole heart is a basic concept. We, we probably kind of have at least an idea of what, uh, what that means. We've heard it our whole life, to love God with your whole heart. But what did Jesus really mean? And to really grasp this, I'm going to apologize at the outset. We're going to think on a, a little bit of, we're going to look at the original language. The original language helps us to understand these thoughts a little bit better And we're going to look at Greek, we're going to look at Hebrew, we're going to look at Aramaic a little bit, so that we can grasp what it means to truly love our God with our heart, our soul, and our strength. Again, we start off, we are to love our God with our whole heart. The Greek is kardia. The Hebrew is levav or lev. And it is a place of thought, will, and affection. It's interesting, Hebrew doesn't have a word for brain. So instead, they use the word for heart to communicate the idea of thought and processes. So the heart is where one feels. It is also the place of decision and choice. In essence, the heart then is the inner man. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with your inner man. All of our emotions, all of our thoughts, all of our attitudes, all of our motives, the expectation is that they are all expressed with love for God as our greatest goal. Basically, God is to be our passion. Are you passionate about some things? I know I am. 
We all have different opportunities to be passionate about things. But what is God's expectation? Our, God's expectation for us is that we are passionate about him. We get out of bed because of who he is. We serve because of who he is. We make decisions based off of who he is. God is our passion. Now, this can be a challenge, partly because, or simply because, can I put it that way, the bad news is that the Bible talks about our heart, and our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And the writer continues and says, who can even know it? And so God commands us to love him with all of our heart, that our passion, our emotion, our will, our thoughts are wrapped up in him. And then we are slammed down or we are understand this reality. My heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So then what is the key to loving our God with our whole heart? Well, that we need a new heart. We need to be fundamentally transformed from rebellion and hatred towards God to now love. And that can only happen if God gives us a new heart. And how do we do that? Well, you know, this can only happen as we trust in Christ. And so this is the command for everybody. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with your whole heart. Have you trusted Christ? Do you have that new heart? And if you do have that new heart, are we then surrendering our emotions, our will, our thinking, so that we could say, as we put our head on the pillow, by God's grace, God is my passion. I live for him. That's the expectation. We are called to love our God with all our heart. It doesn't stop there. Secondly, we should love our God with our whole soul. Verse 5 again, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. Now the common view is that the soul of man is, is an inner light or an inner being that is trapped inside a body. Okay, When we think about our soul, we think of the real person inside our body. But this is actually uh, a Greek philosophy. And it misses what, what the Hebrew idea in this passage is. Sometimes we think of our soul like a ghost trapped inside a machine. But that's not the Hebrew concept of soul that Jesus is actually declaring. The Hebrew word translated as soul is actually called nephesh, and the basic meaning is your throat. And you might be like, what? So we are to love our God with our throat. Okay, what, is that? what does that mean? Well, nephesh refers to the living, to the breathing, and even, yes, the eating of our life. It refers to our communication. It refers to the way of our living, the way we go about our business. So we are to love our God with our heart, our inner man, but then we are also to love our God with our outer man, our, the way we go about our business, the living, the breathing, and the eating of our life. It denotes the entire physical being, who we are and the way we go about our business. So when Jesus calls us to love the Lord with our whole soul, he is calling us to love him with every part of our life. 
Paul echoes this concept in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We are to present our bodies a living sacrifice unto our God. We love him with all of our physical life. In other words, we could say God then is our priority. God is our passion when we love him with our whole heart. But then God becomes our priority. Every single one of us has a priority structure in our minds. And it's, it's driven by our worldview. If you have passion in Christ and you desire to, to know and to understand and to love God, then that will transform or that will then transfer to our physical life. Our priorities will be arranged as such. The living, the breathing, and even the eating of life should be because we love our God. This transform, this, this deals with every part of our life. It deals with the music we listen to. It deals with the jobs we take. It deals with the words we use, the entertainment we enjoy. We are to love our God with every part of this physical life. Do you love him that way? So we are to love our God with all our heart, the inner man. We are to love our God with our soul, the outer man. And then we are to love, to love our God with all of our strength. All thy might is how the translators have translated it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 22, the translators have Jesus as quoted as saying, thou shalt love the Lord with all thy mind. And when we think about strength, there is another Hebrew word that could have been used that denotes muscle power. Because when we think about strength, we think about muscle strength. But the word translated as strength in the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 will give us a deeper insight. That word in strength in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is actually the word me'od. Me'od. And this word is not actually a noun at all, but it's actually an adverb. And an adverb intensifies its object. This word, more often than not, is translated as muchness. The Greek interpreters use power or dunamis. Aramaic interpreters use the word for wealth or that which also can be translated as that on which man trusts. So, with that in mind, when Jesus quoted the Shema, he translated ma'od as mind and strength. Using whatever you have, your muchness to love our God. The point is that everything in a person's life, his time, his talent, and his treasure, or his muchness, it offers mankind a chance to love God. So God is then to be our pursuit. God is to be our passion. God is to be our priority. And God is to be our pursuit. We use everything we have. We leverage everything we have to know and to love our God. Every part of life. We've been given this command. 
by the one who fashioned us, the one who engineered us, the one who made us. And beloved, I'm sure you can see people who will invest their time in all kinds of other things that they think will bring them happiness. And there may be a moment or there may be just some some moments where there is a little measure of happiness that comes. But everything will pale in comparison to knowing, loving, and serving our God. Okay, I'm going to pick on something in pop culture. There's been a concert that has taken place in Detroit. And there are thousands who have gone to this concert. I'm not going to say who it is. You might know who it is. There are people who even sit outside and just sit to try to hear what's going on in this concert. And people are very fanatical about this certain artist. Can I say, knowing your God will blow all of that other excitement out of the water. Serving your God and knowing him intimately will give you more fulfillment than any other thing that this life has to offer. Why? Because we were made to know God. We were made to love him. And we are at our best as humans when we love and pursue him and him alone. And this is what he has called us to do. He has called us to love our God supremely. So the question I have for you is, do you? Now, probably all of us would confess that we don't love him like we should. And if we're really honest, we would say, I can't. Why? Because we get swayed and we get pulled away by so many other things. So then how can we love him like this if that's the expectation? Well, we can love him first and simply because he first loved us. He communicated that love, the the reality of love to us as his creatures. We were made in his image. And because he loved us, then we at least have the potential to love him. 1 John 4, 9, we love him because he first loved us. The second answer, because his love then came to us when we were at our worst. Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth or demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you were in rebellion against God, when you were focused on your flesh and focused on whatever your passion was, God loved you and he sent his only begotten son to die for you. So we can love him because his love has transformed us. And the gospel has given us a new heart, the good news, the fact that Christ died for our sins. He took your penalty. He took your punishment upon himself. So if you are here without Christ, you will not be capable of fulfilling your greatest expectation, your greatest responsibility to love God. You can't do it. Why? Because you are lost. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You need a new heart. You need to accept Christ. That is what you need. And the wonderful news is, though you are dead, you can be alive in Christ as you trust in the finished work of what Christ has done on your behalf. And so if you are here without the gospel or without Christ, you need the gospel. You need to accept Christ. 
Today is the day of salvation. Don't delay any longer. But what about those who are saved? We have been transformed. We have a new heart. And I've always, I've told the teens, it's interesting, the most miserable person in the world is not the lost person who's enjoying their sin, but it is the, the, the saved person who says he's saved but then lives his life like he is not. He is miserable because he's not living according to what is true. It's not, he's not living the realities of what God had saved him to do, and that is to love him with all Oh, there is his heart, his soul, and his everything. So for those who are saved, you know what you need? You need the gospel too. We need to be reminded what our Savior did for us. And look to the gospel for the reason and the strength to love God as he has commanded. You might say, oh, but the, the, the distractions are so strong. He knows that. Surrender them to him. I've, maybe you would say, I've walked too far away. All it takes is for you to turn around and say, Lord, would you help me to love you with my whole heart, with my whole soul, with all, everything I have. And so we have the command given. This is your expectation. This is your greatest responsibility. You are to love your God. But this is not enough. Let's go back to our text in Matthew And we will see that there is a second command, a second expectation placed on us as created beings. Matthew chapter 22 again. We'll pick back up, verse 37. We've covered this, but we'll cover it again. Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. God's command is clear, you should love God, but now God's command is also clear, we must love others. This is fascinating to me. Notice Jesus answers a question that is not asked. They asked, what is the greatest command? That would be singular. And yet Jesus responds and he gives them a plural answer. Two. Two commands. Jesus answers this question That's never even asked. The Pharisees did not ask about the two greatest commands, but Jesus includes it in his answer nevertheless. Why? Because they are both so intertwined, you really cannot separate one from the other. Loving God will lead to and manifest itself in loving others. Jesus even says that love for others is the great test of whether anyone loves him. John 13, 35, by this shall all men know you are my disciples if you have love one to another. We are called to love each other. But what does love for our fellow man look like? Very quickly, turn to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, Leviticus 19, verse 18 is the quote that Jesus gives for the second greatest command in Matthew chapter 22. But Leviticus 19 lays out for us just a roadmap of what it looks like to love other people. Because can I say at the outset, while you're turning there, our world has gotten love really messed up. Sometimes we, don't, we say we love certain things, we don't love certain things. People are crying, I need you to love me, and what does that look like? And 
in this passage, we have God passing on to the children of Israel what it looks like to love our neighbor. Again, we're in uh, Leviticus 19, verse 18, again, is the quote, okay? So let's look at that. Thou shalt not... Uh, thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So there it is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. So what does loving our neighbor look like? Well, first off, loving our neighbor is free from hatred and bitterness. Look at verse 17 of Leviticus chapter 19. It says, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Okay, that is the key or that is the definition of what bitterness is. Someone does you wrong, and it doesn't, I'm not up here to minimize the wrong, okay? You may have experienced great, great turmoil because of someone else's sin or someone else's decision. I'm not minimizing that. But the expectation is part of loving others is to not harbor hatred for thy brother in thine heart. Don't be bitter against your neighbor. Forgive and don't keep a list of wrongs. Okay, oftentimes we give ourselves a pass, right? If by chance we have a, a meeting we have to go to we, we, and we're, we're a little bit late, we show up, you know, I apologize, I'm so sorry, and we give an, uh, not an excuse, but maybe a reason why you weren't there on time, and, and you expect them to kind of give you a little bit of a pass. Well, loving others like we love ourselves, would be giving another person the benefit of the doubt, maybe a pass in certain cases. And you've heard this passage or this verse, love covers a multitude of sins. When we consider what our Lord did for us, when we consider how we hated him and how we had wronged God, then for us to hold a grudge against someone else is not loving, is not loving our neighbor. So loving our neighbor is free from hatred and bitterness. If you're bitter this morning, root out, weed it, pull it out, remove it. So loving our neighbor is free from hatred and bitterness. What else is is loving our neighbor look like? Verse 17 continues, Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. What does that mean? Loving our neighbor means that we can include rebuke when needed. And this rebuke is for their benefit. And this rebuke is actually love. In today's culture, if you were to stand up and say, please stop, don't do this, this is not good for you, you might be labeled a hate monger. You may be labeled as someone who who speaks hate speech. But really what this passage is saying, thou shalt rebuke thy neighbor, is what it basically is saying. Now this is not for your benefit. This is for that loved one's benefit. An illustration of that would be a cancer doctor who comes and says, listen, you do have cancer. We have to address this thing. And if you didn't have that doctor, you would have continued on in the same direction you were going and you would eventually die. But that cancer, or that cancer doctor loves you enough to sit there and say, hey, listen, they're, they're, we have to make some changes. And yet when we have someone, maybe a, a fellow believer comes to us and says, hey, you know, I, I noticed something in your life. I've been praying about it with, uh, for you. Can I help you? I don't know if God's necessarily pleased in that situation. Oftentimes we like to kind of bristle at that. 
But loving our neighbor at times can include rebuke when that's needed. We do it lovingly. We do it humbly. And sometimes even to not tell someone the truth can in some cases be an indication of your selfishness. I don't want the awkward conversation. I don't want to deal with that. So I'll just let it, by, let it go by. Or it's not my job. But love for a neighbor at times is rebuking. What else is true? We've got to move quickly. Love, love for our neighbor is free from revenge. Okay? He says very clearly, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. Don't seek to be your own agent of justice. And then lastly, he finishes it off. Love our neighbor. Loving our neighbor is patterned after how we love ourselves. Some have argued that to love others, we have to love ourselves. And they use this passage as a proof. But this is not what the passage is getting at. And to help us to understand what Jesus is saying, just look at a selfish person. And that is your pattern for how you should love others. Does he care for his body? Yep. Does he care for his pursuits? Oh, yes, for sure. Does he care for his aches and pains? Yes, and it's almost unbearable to be around those people. But Jesus is saying, since you naturally love yourself, you should love others with the same passion you have for your creature comforts. For husbands in the room, that means we should love our wife. For wives in the room, we should, in the room, we should love our husbands with sacrifice. We should love how we love ourselves. So then the question is, do we love others like this? What Jesus is saying is that our love for him can't be in a vacuum. Our love for God will begin to overflow to others, so much so that we could even use our love for others as a barometer of sorts for our love for our God. That's what John is saying. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his neighbor, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen cannot love God whom he hath not seen. So, are you loving mankind like this? Can I say again that our our world has love so mixed up, but it starts with loving God and it manifests itself in loving our neighbor as ourselves. So let's make sure we are loving God so that we can love others. So to wrap this up, we must have it to survive. Without it, we would only last a few days. Every function of our bodies is dependent on it. No other substance is as essential to our existence than this particular element. You probably have figured it out. But its scientific name is dihydrogen monoxide. And we all know it as water. Every organ, every tissue, every process uses water to accomplish its intended purpose. When a person tries to function without it, then everything begins to shut down and fails to work. This is true in the physical world. Water is crucial, but today, can I say that water is to the physical world as love is to the immaterial world, to the spiritual side of man. We were created to love. When God made us in his image, love was communicated to us. So love could be called then a foundational attribute. And Beloved, if we get love right, we will likely get more of life right. So what are we to love? As we have seen this morning, we are called to love the Lord first, above everything else, 
and with every part of our existence, and this love then will spill over to our fellow man. For the unsaved, again, you need Christ. You need Christ to give you a new heart capable of loving God. And for the saved, ask him to help you to love him and love others in a superlative way, to the extreme. These are what man was meant to do. These are man's greatest responsibilities. And I would ask, how are you doing in fulfilling both of these greatest commands? Would you bow together in prayer with me, please? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I've always heard as God's word has been faithfully preached, all people must respond. And so I don't know, I don't know where you are, but I do know that all of us probably could say, Lord, I could love you more. Lord, I get distracted. Lord, I tend to get focused on other things. And I want to give you just a moment to realize your, your responsibility. To realize the blessing that awaits you if you truly love God with everything you have. And then you love others. God says that he wants to come to give you abundant life. And so take a few moments and do an assessment. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. You can't love him because you're still busy loving yourself. You're still busy pursuing your flesh. Well, then I would say to you, you need Christ. You need to run to him. You need a new heart. And so ask him to save you. If you're a believer, maybe you've gotten focused on other things. Maybe your love for others has, your love for God has grown cold, and by extension, then your love for others has grown cold as well. Ask God to rekindle that love for him and for others. I'm going to give you just a few moments to do business with God, and then we'll sing and we'll finish. Heavenly Father, we would admit that we don't love you like we should. Lord, we need your help. Lord, would you kindle within us a passion for you? May you be our greatest priority, and may we pursue you with everything we have. Lord, help us to love others around us. Help us to see their plight if they're unsaved. Help us to maybe give a rebuke, a loving rebuke, if needed. Help us not to be bitter. Help us to love our fellow man sacrificially like we would love ourselves and care for ourselves. Lord, these commands are too heavy for us. We need your help. We need the gospel. And so, Lord, if there's someone here who's unsaved, help them to accept Christ even this morning. Lord, you've shown us clearly what your expectation is. Help us now to be obedient to it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.